Well, good morning. It really is a privilege uh, to be here today as part of this church. Many of you uh, know that I was pastor here, and now my wife and I and family just get to be attenders here. And uh, it's great to be back at the church that we love so desperately and be a part of this. And for those online, thanks for tuning in today. Um, we're in a series on uh, hospitality, what it looks like to be people of God who show hospitality. And before we jump into the day, I, how many of you have ever gone uh, to a place where you expected good hospitality? Maybe it was a restaurant or a hotel or whatever. And instead, you received uh, rudeness or poor service or whatever. Um, there was a time years back when uh, my family and my extended family on, on Trisha's side uh, had been gifted a hotel stay. It was over Valentine's weekend. Um, this was probably at least 20 plus years ago. And uh, Trisha and I were excited because 20 years ago, um, we were kind of... Uh, still young in ministry and not making a whole lot of money. And uh, so to get a free getaway uh, for a weekend on Valentine's with family was a great gift. And so we were looking forward to it. We make the journey over to the coast where we had been gifted these hotel stays. Uh, We get to the hotel. It does look a little worn down. We'll just kind of start there. Looks a little tired. Uh, We go into check-in and a a host that doesn't seem interested in doing his job uh, was there to check us in and we make our way to our rooms and open the door and the first thing we're greeted with is this smell that I can't quite put my finger on and probably if I located it wouldn't want to put my finger on it. Uh, It just did not smell pleasant. We walk in thinking okay well maybe we just open the room a little bit. start to you know, be better. No, we walked into the room and uh, there were stains uh, on the ceiling, uh, stains on the beds, um, dead bugs in the corner of the room. Uh, walked into the bathroom and then just walked back out because uh, it was, a, you know, it was obviously, we didn't know what to do with ourselves. We stood in the middle of the room because we were afraid to sit down anywhere. Uh, and my, my in-laws come in from their room with a common experience. You know, it wasn't just our room that was this way. It was their room as well. So we decide there and then, we're not staying here. They obviously were not expecting people to come and stay here. We can't stay here. So my in-laws and their graciousness end up putting us up in a hotel in Newport, a very nice hotel uh, for the whole family to have a great weekend over Valentine's. And I can guarantee you that Trisha and I have to this day never returned to that location because they just weren't ready for us. They weren't extending what I would say was good hospitality. And you know, as we, we think about hospitality from a Christian perspective, Christians should be the most hospitable people of all people. We should be the kind of people who are welcoming and engaging others around us because that is at the very core of what Christianity is really all about especially to those who desperately need the hope of the gospel. Hospitality is not just for inside the walls of this church. We're pretty okay at doing that. We see our friends and we we talk with them, but that's not the extent of it. In fact, the early followers of Jesus, we see their story in the book of Acts. They were marked by extraordinary hospitality. In fact, they were known by their love. 
as the church in the book of Acts would gather and as it was continuing to, to explode with growth, those happened obviously in public spaces and in homes. This kind of predates a church building. And what was so unique about the church is that it was a collective of people from very different parts and aspects of society. In the same house, you had slave and free. In the same home, you had a, had a Gentile and a Jew. In the same home, you had different uh, races of people, different genders, all coming together because it was a place of fellowship with each other and a place of fellowship with God. And the thing they celebrated was that sense of hospitality toward each other and to the watching world that we're looking at this unique blend of people called the Christians or the way that were so hospitable in how they approached each other and how they engaged the world. And when I think about the church today, the church is the body of Christ. And it should exercise the same hospitality that Christ extended during His ministry. It should be the same church that was birthed in the book of Acts by the Holy Spirit to be people who intentionally Connected with each other, yes, but then intentionally engaged the world around them with the hope of the gospel. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he was always hospitable to everybody who came to him. I mean, think about it. Sinners, outcasts, religious leaders, they all had access to Jesus. And the thing that's unique about Jesus that other leaders wouldn't do is he would also engage people that nobody else would talk to. Those that were overlooked. We know the story of the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman that a good proper Jew would never talk to, a Samaritan or a woman, yet Jesus engages a conversation with her. We see the leper who nobody would go near or touch. Jesus touches, connects with, looks at for the sense of hospitality and extending the grace of God to that individual. Jesus was extremely hospitable. But yet the world did not treat Jesus with that same measure of hospitality, did they? We can see in John chapter 1, verse 10, it says this, that he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So he comes into a world he created, and they reject him. In fact, if you rewind back to the prophet Isaiah, who speaks of the coming Messiah, in Isaiah 53.3, he says these words about the coming Messiah, that he was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. That's exactly the way it was for Jesus coming into the world. The religious leaders of the day, the very ones who should have expected and accepted Jesus the Messiah, they turned their back on him. They didn't acknowledge him. They didn't receive him. They despised him, rejected him, mocked him, conspired against him, arrested him, and crucified him. Yet, during the world's most inhospitable treatment of him, Jesus demonstrates the extraordinary hospitality of God to all people. That's the way Jesus lived. He didn't return what he was receiving from people. He would just turn the tables and say, even though you're not showing this to me, I will show you what hospitality looks like. 
I will show you God's heart for His people. Hospitality is, is a word that I looked up in the dictionary because we use it and we don't really think about what it actually means. And in Webster's Dictionary, it has a very interesting translation. Hospitality is the friendly and generous reception of guests, visitors, or strangers. Friendly and generous reception. That is exactly what Jesus came to do. That is exactly who God was in His expression through Christ. Friendly and generous. To extend such a great gift to all of us who have received that salvation, yes. But what about those that haven't yet? See, on the cross, Jesus showed us the cost and the commitment of God's hospitality to sinners. And that's what we're going to look at today. This is kind of our overarching theme for today's message. But what I want to do is break down what God's hospitality looks like. Because sometimes kind of overarching statements like that are hard for us to put handles on to internalize. So I'm going to break what God's hospitality looks like in this passage specifically down in Luke 23 when we get there. So we can put some handles on this and find some ways for us to internalize this in our everyday life. Because that really is my hope and prayer for each of us that we would do this. So the first point is this, God's hospitality is not, is not idle, it's active. God's hospitality is not idle, it's active. You know, hospitality isn't automatic. It doesn't just fall into your laps. It's not you wake up and you accidentally showed hospitality to somebody. It just doesn't work that way. It requires initiative. It requires action. And throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we see God continuing to take the initiative to express hospitality to His world. Think about it from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, we see the creation of the world. But before that, the question that should haunt our minds in a good way is why in the world would God create earth? Why would He create people? God in Himself is fully sufficient. He has no need. Why would He create the world in which we live and place humankind in it. Because God is also a relational God. And He created people to have fellowship and relationship with Him. To worship Him. To love Him of their own choosing. That's why God gave people a free will. If we were forced to love God and had no other choice but to be robots responding to God's love in a very computed way, that's not choice. And God wanted a people that would choose Him. So He creates man. And we don't go very far into the book of Genesis and we see what happens with man's free will. They reject God's beautiful relationship for what looked like a better opportunity. And sin comes into the world, right? But even in that fall of man, we see in Genesis 3, God coming into the garden to find man, even though he already knows that man has sinned, that man has disobeyed him, that he's turned his back on fellowship with God, yet God comes and provides a solution for their problem. And as that story fast forwards, we see the story of Abraham where God chooses one person to enter into a relationship of hospitality with him to become the father of the nation of Israel. And we see Abraham eventually move into the land where he will soon be the promised land of the people of Israel. We fast forward that story to Moses. We find all the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, now in captivity in Egypt. 
And they're crying out for God's help. And God calls Moses. Extends hospitality to him to be a person who will lead the people of Israel out of captivity in the land of Egypt. And Moses does. And he calls the community of people into relationship with God. And God establishes some rules around this relationship. We, we call them the, the Ten Commandments and then all of the laws that go along with that. God has chosen a people to express his hospitality to. But this is not the fulfillment of the story of God. Because even the people of Israel who eventually enter their land of promise, what do they do? They continually turn their back on God. They continue to reject His hospitality. They turn to pagan gods and foreign gods and worship them. And time and time again, because of His grace, God sends prophets to correct the people, to draw their hearts back to Him. And they do for a time, and then they turn their back on God again, and eventually they're exiled out of their land of promise. Fast forward a few more years, they return to their land of promise as the nation of Israel once again, setting the stage for Jesus, the Messiah, to come. And Jesus, what a great example of God's hospitality. The incarnation of Jesus. With God saying, I love you so much, I'm going to place hospitality within each person's reach through the person of Jesus Christ. And so he comes. And then not only that, but Jesus also dies to establish that hospitality with us. But prior to his death, there's this great call of Jesus that is such an invitation to fellowship and relationship. Look at what it says, Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How many of you have a, a friend or a couple that you know, a family, and when you go to their home, you just find yourself able to let down and relax, right? That's taken some time to get there though, right? Probably the first time it was a little bit clunky, a little awkward as you're kind of getting to know each other, but there eventually came a point where you could just be at rest with them. You could be your true self with them. And Jesus is saying, come to me, because I am the kind of person who will let you be at rest in me. I will give you true rest for your souls. And what a great extension of hospitality. What's so unique about Jesus in that time is that he didn't wait around, he took the initiative. He didn't wait for people to come to him, he went to them. Didn't he chose his disciples? He went to people that were often overlooked. He chose a tax collector to be one of his disciples who was considered a worse than a sinner. He went out and sought people to be with. And then his ministry was in among people. He made himself accessible as a sign of God's hospitality. He took the initiative. We might think that we choose God. The choice is not that way. God actually chose you first. We responded to God extending His invitation of hospitality to us. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, John writes it this way, This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So dear friends, since God lo so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Because God's extension of hospitality to us through Christ we should be the kind of people who turn that back outward and extend hospitality to other people, especially those who are not in relationship with Christ yet. 
But what's different about Jesus' hospitality is it was a pretty extreme example of hospitality. He had done something that nobody had ever done before. In fact, nobody could conceive what Jesus was about to do as an expression of God's hospitality. He not only came as God's Son in human form in order to bring hospitality within reach of those around Him, but Jesus also, even more incredibly, would become the sacrifice that would ultimately extend God's hospitality to all the world for all time. How I wish I could have been there when Jesus walked this earth. But the good news is, I'm still in God's hospitality even thousands of years later today because what Jesus did extended that time beyond the immediate to all of us here today. He's including us to come be a part. So it takes action. God's hospitality its not idle. It requires action. And He showed that to us. And we should do the same. Secondly, we see here that God's hospitality is not self-serving. It's sacrificial. Open your Bibles to Luke 23 or go to your smart devices in the Bible app to Luke 23. Or if you're in the notes, you'll have those passages there for you. The religious leaders of the day, as we already talked about, had no room for Jesus. They were never hospitable to Jesus because they were threatened by Him. What He came to do, what He came to teach seemed to be a threat to their form of religion because their religion was all about legalism and exclusion and self-importance. And Jesus came to correct their view of how you approach God. He offered a new covenant, which we know was talked about that night before He was betrayed and crucified. A new covenant in His blood. So their plot was to get rid of Jesus for good. And it all appeared as though their plan was coming together when Judas, one of his own disciples, came to them to help them set the trap. But you know what? Jesus dying on a cross, the plan of that death wasn't their scheming. This was God's plan all along. Think about it. That, that desire wasn't birthed in their stubborn hearts to get rid of Jesus. That plan was birthed in the heart of God to extend hospitality to everybody. Now, certainly it had to be carried out through the actions of men. And so Jesus came, and because of his way that he lived his life and the way that he approached people with open arms and extended hospitality, the religious leaders didn't like that. And so they eventually came up with this plan to have him arrested and falsely charged and found guilty of crimes worthy of death and then sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate and then eventually crucified. And we see now in Luke 23, 32, this event unfolding. Luke's account of the crucifixion goes like this. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. And they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there also hurled insults at him. 
Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. I think it's interesting in this short passage right here, we see a theme. Among those who mocked him, they continue to challenge him. If you are who you say you are, save yourself. So here's the question. Could Jesus have saved himself? Absolutely. He could have called the legion of angels to come, destroy his enemies, and remove his body from that cross. He could have saved himself. But here's the thing. He could not save himself and us at the same time. You see, in order for us to experience the salvation that we have today, Jesus had to die. And what the crowd didn't know, and that criminal who hold insults at him didn't know, is that Jesus was in fact right now saving them. They just couldn't see it that way. Because what Jesus was doing was so unheard of. Now, not in the Roman day. A lot of people died, but the Messiah coming, the Chosen One of God dying for them, saving them. Extremely unheard of. They didn't understand. It's kind of like the illustration maybe you've heard before. I went through some training years back about helping somebody who was drowning. And part of the challenge is the person who is drowning is obviously not thinking with all their faculties. And when somebody comes near them, they either think they're a threat or they try to climb all over them uh, to save themselves. And in, the, and in the result, both end up drowning. And so you have to make sure you're very uh, aware of what's happening around you and telling this person again and again, I am here to help you. Because what looks like rescue in their mind may not be that. It may be a threat to them. That's kind of what was happening here. Here's Jesus actually saving the world and they're saying to him, save yourself and us. And he's like, I am. You just don't see it. Jesus dying so that we could be saved. See, true fellowship with God is only made available through the sacrifice and the death of Christ on that cross. Romans 5.1 tells us, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. We have a chance to respond to God's hospita hospitality. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. See, God's hospitality was sacrificial. It cost. On the cross, Jesus is both the offerer of God's hospitality, and He's also the offering which placed God's hospitality within the reach of everybody. Offerer and offering on the cross. God's hospitality. It's not self-serving. It never will be. It's always sacrificial. And we see that in the cross. Also, God's hospitality is not exclusive. It's inclusive. He goes on Luke's account, verse 40, but the other criminal, so the one on the other side, rebuked him, which was the other criminal. And he said, don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus was crucified between two criminals, sinners. I think that's very fitting and I think it's very intentional. Dying among those that he came to save. But when you think about that conversation between the criminal and Jesus, you have to ask the question, why would Jesus remember him? This criminal has probably led a life that was not God-fearing, obviously had done some things that have led him to be at this point where he is dying because of his crime. What has he done to be remembered by Jesus? He didn't have time on the cross to go to Sunday school to keep perfect church attendance, to tithe, to do all the good things that good Christians could do. He is just there about to die. And he looks at Jesus and he believes. And he says, remember me. And what did Jesus say? Well, here's the deal. When you get off this cross, promise me you'll go to Sunday school, you'll go to church, you'll do good, and then maybe I'll remember you. Jesus knew the severity of the moment. And he said, today, you'll be with me. Probably one of the first conversions right there, while Jesus was actually dying for the sin of mankind. The first one to come in is a criminal who had no opportunity in his life to choose God. But in that moment, was accepted and embraced through God's hospitality shown in the cross of Jesus. I think what else is interesting besides the conversation with the criminal is think about for the moment where the time in which Jesus came and the time in which Jesus died. Because if if Jesus came today and was guilty of some crimes that political or religious leaders determined he was guilty of that was worthy of death, how would he die today? Chances are he would die in a very private location in a prison uh, by lethal injection. And there may be a few people who were there to see it. Maybe the religious leaders who accused him would watch through the glass window as Jesus drew his last breath. When I think about the time in which Jesus came, God was very intentional. And I want you to understand that in this moment when Jesus was arrested and crucified. It wasn't accidental. It was extremely intentional by God. Let me explain. Crucifixion was was a very public execution. It was intended that way by the Roman government. This is what happens to people who work against the government. And so it was very public. They were put on main, main roads, crucified, to intimidate people and say, if you continue down this road, this is the way it's going to go. It's much like today when we hear about a terrorist organization who very publicly executes, beheads people, posts out on video because they want to send a very powerful message to the world. It's a message of fear. But here, God is choosing a very public platform not to send a heavy-handed message, but to open the gates that all might come to repentance and acceptance of the offering He was offering. Here is Jesus crucified among thieves in a very public way. In fact, at this point, it was the Passover celebration of the people of Israel. And that means that 
all God-fearing Jews throughout the Roman Empire and beyond would travel to Jerusalem during this time of the year. And so there were millions of people. Jerusalem was, was overwhelmed by people from every nation, every tongue, every status of life, and they had come. And here was the time that God chose publicly for Jesus to die. I think that sends a very powerful message. And that message is all people, all races, all tribes, all tongues, the rich, the poor, the soldier, the religious leader, the criminal. You all have open access to the hospitality of God through Christ Jesus. Friends, it wasn't accidental the way God did this. Extremely intentional to say His death is not exclusive, it's inclusive. Come, whoever will, in fact, Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. Well, the story goes on, Luke 23.44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It almost seems like Luke kind of puts this thing about a curtain in the scripture that almost looks like it's out of context it's like why would it all of a sudden talk about draperies i mean what is the point is he a you know interior designer wants to bring up a little splash of color no this is very specific and very intentional what luke is talking about is that curtain in the temple that separated the most holy place from the holy of holies so here was this one place that only one person was allowed to enter one time a year. And there was a very thick curtain that covered and excluded anybody else from coming into this place. And I think it's interesting that that's the curtain Luke's talking about, that God tore. What was the message there? My presence used to be restricted to one person one time a year. But now, all are welcome to come. The curtain's open. That was the powerful message that Luke just tucked in there with this little statement that many of us read over and don't think about. Again, demonstrating God's inclusiveness when it comes to salvation. Doesn't matter what walk of life you come from, what you are currently doing, all are welcome, all have equal access to my presence, to hospitality with me. Why? Because it tells us in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And finally, we can see that God's hospitality is not convenient. It's costly. When you think about Jesus coming into this world, His incarnation, that's not very convenient for Him. Before He came, He was with God in eternity, in heaven, as the Son of God. Uh, think about all of the power and the privilege He had. And then, in God's love for the world, He says, I'm going to send you, Jesus, the Son of God, to come into the world, to clothe yourself with humanity, to come in the most humble of ways, to be harassed by people, and ultimately, to be crucified. Talk about inconvenience. But that was God's 
extension of hospitality, it's costly. It's not convenient. Luke's gospel goes on in verse 46 that Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The cost of God's hospitality was Jesus' life. There was no other way. The passage goes on. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God. Here's another man who seems so contrary to be a person who would understand what was happening, but the Roman centurion sees it. Surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all of those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Here's the truth. Hospitality will have a cost. It will cost you something. But that is okay. That's something we have to be willing to embrace. It's not going to be convenient. But the hospitality God is calling us to extend to those around us will cost your time. It may cost your resource. But how dare we sit here as people who so welcomed God's hospitality to us and, and we embrace that. How dare that we would sit here and hold that to ourselves. Because it's not convenient to take a few extra minutes to talk to this coworker or the person that God lays in our heart that we see across the road from us. There are times, and you know it, when God has, has prompted your heart to do something that you were like, this isn't a good time, God. This is pretty inconvenient. Yeah, well, how convenient was Jesus' death on a cross? Not very. He calls us to be people willing to pay the price to extend his, his invitation to the world around us. And for us, that price is our time, our convenience, at times our resources. At times, it may even be people's opinion of us. I know the thing keeping most Christians quiet today is a culture that will cancel you if you tend to believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God and that Jesus is the only way to the Father. But your reputation will cost you something to do that, to step out and extend the invitation. At the cross, we see God's divine hospitality where God invites an undeserving and unexpected people to come to Him to be with Him. And now He expects for us to do the same. I come back to our first point. On the cross, Jesus showed us the cost and the commitment of God's hospitality to sinners. I'm going to wrap up with a very simple illustration then we'll get you on your way. Many of us, prior to coming to Christ, we, um, we know what, what, it, what our life was like. Maybe it, for you it was an addiction and a sin that held you bondage. For others, your sin may have been self-righteousness. You thought you were good enough that you didn't need God. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that sin has a consequence. It gets a hold in our life. And right now, like you were at one point, there are people that you know and care very desperately for that are held in bondage in sin. It's got a hold in their life. 
And yeah, maybe you've been praying for them. But today, maybe God's challenging you to do more than just pray. We should start with that always, but maybe there's something else that we should do. Because not only does that sin hold them captive, it does something else. That sin has a way, and here's, I'm going to use this, this green ball to represent the, the people that you might know. Your, your friend or your acquaintance who was held by the power of sin, they are, because of that sin, not only held captive by it, but they're also out of fellowship, the kind of fellowship God wants. Yes, God loves them, but there's a broken fellowship at this point in time with them. This ball represents God. And I'll put that on this side. And what our sin does besides hold us captive is that sin also, I can get that to go through there. There we go. That sin also separates us from the true fellowship that God wants to have with us. So your friend may have heard that God loves them, but they feel something different right now. And what they feel is captive to their sin. And maybe they don't know that the greatest expression of God's hospitality was Jesus coming to get rid of that sin, to remove the hold that sin has in their life. I'm going to pick a couple of guys to help me, and I hope this doesn't embarrass them, but Steve, will you help me? Nate, will you help me? Come on up here. They're going to preach the rest of the message. I'm going to go sit down. No, I just want you to hold. Uh, I don't have enough hands to do this next part, so you guys just hold that for me. Thanks. So I have this red silk, symbolic of Jesus' lifeblood. We know that on the cross, God showed us the greatest act of his hospitality, his son Jesus dying on the cross for us. And so we take the blood of Jesus, and we know that it covers our sin. But not only does it cover our sin, it does something powerful that each one of us have felt before. I'm going to have each of you take one rope in each hand. And I want you just to pull against each other. Keep pulling. Not only does that cover sin, removes it. What's the Bible tell us? Thanks, you guys can have a seat. The Bible tells us that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our sins from us. You and I enjoy this today. Fellowship with God. What about your friend? What about your coworker? What about your family member? Is that sin still separating them from experiencing the true hospitality that God wants to extend? Today, I want you just to close your eyes for a minute. I want you to think about the people that God's placed into your life that you know today are not in right relationship with Him. I want you to, in your mind, think of their name. Father, you know the people in our lives that so desperately need to know the hospitality expressed through the cross of Christ for them. Right now, maybe they can't see it because they're so overwhelmed by their own sin. Maybe because of that sin having a hold in their life, they have bitterness, they have doubt, they have anger toward you. They just can't see it. But Lord, they cannot resist the work you've done in our life. 
So thank you for the hospitality expressed to each one of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. Thank you for forgiving our sins. But don't let us just stop there. You've called us into a ministry of reconciliation. So we pray for our friends right now, for our family member. But more than that, I pray a challenge in our heart to do something this week to extend God's hospitality to them. That might be a phone conversation. It might take some of our time, some of our resource, inviting them to lunch or whatever it might be. But God, may we be the kind of people who have not only received your hospitality, but willing now to extend it to those around us. Thank you for your love for us. But now may that love and grace flow through us. Give us the words to say. Give us the intention to act. And now for those maybe who are here today or watching online, that you know that sin is your story right now. It's got a hold in your life. And you feel that reality of sin and you believe that's keeping you unworthy of God's love. Friends, God loves you. Even in your sinfulness, the thief on the cross had no time to get his life right. But he believed. And Jesus accepted him. He does the same with you today. So if you're here and you know that sin has got a hold in your life, but you want to be set free, the truth is you can. His name is Jesus, the Savior of our souls. So if that's you today, I'm just going to take a moment here for all of us just to pray a prayer together. I'll, I'll lead you in that prayer. Just simply repeat after me. But if this is your prayer from your heart, you speak it to God as though it's your own prayer. Dear God, I know that I have sinned. I have failed you. And that sin has a hold in my life. But I believe today that your son Jesus died for my sins, that I might be forgiven. So I confess my sin to you today and I ask for your salvation in my life, that I might be restored in relationship with you. And then help me, God, to share that with others to share your hospitality with those who don't know you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand this morning. Thanks for your time today. But more importantly, friends, we have a challenge before us. We are in a culture that so desperately needs to know God's hospitality. We have forgotten how to be hospitable to each other. And it's time for God's love to fill our hearts in such a way that we will be hospitable in a culture that wants to continue to ostracize believers in Jesus. Let's be the people who will choose to extend this hospitality this week.